0: So often we tend to think about burial traditions of indigenous populations as being very different from our modern American sensibilities about death and dying. But if we take a careful examination cross-culturally, the evidence actually proves quite the opposite. While specific methods and materials may differ, at the end of the day, no one is really reinventing the wheel. Today we consider how many Native practices, in their own unique aspects, really were more effectively dealing with things than even with European burials. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So the very, very, very late episode, um, don't write a book. That's my recommendation. Uh, I have been, again, buried under edits of my most recent project on the Salzburgers of Effingham County, which is a topic just as not interesting as you would expect. Um, But I did get to do some fun cemetery stuff on this project. But unfortunately, it has delayed getting this out This has also just been a very research intensive month. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But in many ways, it's actually very rewarding. And I am sorry in a way that I put off doing Native North American burials for so long. And I already, if you have listened to the past two episodes, I definitely enumerated that, particularly in the episode I did on NAGPRA a couple weeks ago talked about, you know, as a Caucasian woman who has zero ties to native populations, aside from having an undergraduate degree in anthropology, I am very sensitive to this. And I don't want to speak to anyone's culture. And as I'll discuss in a little while, unfortunately, so often it is the white population that speaks to native culture. But I think that, especially as listeners who are very engaged and who are very interested in burial customs and what we see, the parallels that happen, and this is an, a long-standing argument that has been going on over a number of things. You know, the stepped pyramids that you see in Mesoamerica. The idea of you know Thor Heyerdahl and the Contiki and the idea that the only possible way that the native populations could have learned this type of technology would be if someone had sailed over from Egypt and brought it with them, and I think we've been very open about the blatant underlying racism that exists against indigenous populations all around the globe, but particularly against Native North Americans here. Which is ridiculous, because I think it's very easy to see how you can have very similar technology emerge completely separated. And I think that what we're going to talk about today definitely enforces that. Now, something I didn't really go too far into, but I definitely have mentioned over the past two episodes, is the challenges of doing research into native burial customs. Primarily because the majority of these cultures do not have a full written history. Their traditions are oral traditions. And I actually have a quote later that definitely speaks to that. So it's not like they were recording things. The majority of the recording was done post-contact. So it is done by people who are observing these cultures. And of course those observations have their own cultural bias. Likewise, in terms of these traditions, we only see a portion of this. Not every culture exists in the exact same form that we tend to think of in our Western world. So the geographic and cultural diversity of Native American tribes by default means that their practices also vary. So, if you listened last week when I talked about the mound builders, they covered a fairly wide range, but it was mainly in the near Midwest, so the area sort of surrounding the Great Lakes, moving south from there. Remember the Ohio River Valley, the Mississippi River Valley. The tribes I'm going to be talking about today mainly populate... The Midwest, and I use the Midwest in a very wide range. So I'll be talking about the area similar to the Mound Builders around Wisconsin and Minnesota and things like that, but also going far further west. And as a result, the majority of the tribes that I will be talking about are definitely migratory in nature. They are the true hunter gatherers, they are the Plains Indians that are most often portrayed in American film, in American television, things like that. If you have seen the majority of films or depictions of Native Americans that are made by popular culture, odds are you were looking at the Plains Indians. And certainly I feel like going back, and I... I feel like I should make a fun category now of, you know, nonsense that you learned in sixth grade social studies. But I feel like that was one of the distinctions that was made. When you probably had to sit down and you had to do a report, you know, you got assigned one of the tribes that were the Plains Indians. But I give you this because it is a wide area that we're going to be covering and... Also, keep in mind that post-contact, especially once we get to the late 19th century and these folks start to be forced onto reservations, that their customs start to take in a new geographic area. One of the tribes that I will talk about extensively is the Choctaw, and the Choctaw, who are now based mainly in the Midwest, um, Oklahoma, that sort of area, Obviously, originally started much farther east, but were forced west as part of Indian removal policies, starting in the 1830s. I say all of these things because I don't want to pigeonhole any one tribe. I don't want to pigeonhole any one area. But I'm trying to give you an idea of the fact that these customs are not necessarily a geographic thing. And if you read a lot of the literature, they try to push the idea that it's a very specific geographic thing. And I don't know if I necessarily believe that. I think that there were some common themes and there are some common ideas. And I'll draw a parallel to kind of Western burial traditions that hopefully will make some sense when I get to this later on. But without further ado, what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about scaffold burials. Sometimes they're called sky burials. Sometimes they are tree burials. But for the most part, I am talking about any burial where the remains are left exposed above ground. I will tend to use the term scaffold burial because I think that this is the most all-encompassing. Now, these are some of the most well-documented burial traditions among Native North Americans. Mainly because... They were very arresting. They were things that Europeans had never seen before. So it was something that uh, even prior to the days of photography, people wanted to record because it was seen as being so different. These burials obviously are mirrored in a number of different cultures. I am going to be focusing on on the examples among the indigenous people of North America today, but obviously there are a lot of parallels that can be drawn to Tibetan sky burials that can be drawn to the aborigines of Australia. Again, most of my scope has always been American cemeteries, so that's what I'm going to focus on today, but obviously this is not an isolated idea, and that's one of the things I definitely want to push with talking about them, is the fact that you can have similar customs that develop in isolation because they all serve a particular purpose. The book I probably pushed the most about American cemeteries is called The Last Great Necessity. Cemeteries are the last great necessity of society. Cemeteries in all senses, whether they are a traditional western cemetery or graveyard the way that we think of them or it is another purpose, We know that something needs to be done about the dead, that the dead inevitably are going to decay, and that with decay comes problems, comes predation, whether it be by actual animals, whether it be by insects. There is a decomposition. Often there can be a spread of disease. The dead need to be dealt with. And so the way that indigenous cultures deal with the dead is surprisingly similar to the same challenges faced by every other culture. So to start off with, what I want to talk about is actually something I probably should have addressed last week, but I had a ton of ground to cover. And that's the origin of a lot of the understanding that we have of native culture. And this all grows out of something called the Bureau of Ethnog. That grows out of something that we call the Bureau of American Ethnology. Uh, The American part is added in 1897, so it is not originally American. It's originally just the Bureau of Ethnology. And it was created in 1879 by an act of Congress um, for one pretty specific purpose, but then it kind of mushroomed from there. And the original purpose was that the Interior Department what we would today call the Department of the Interior wanted to give they are sort of in an amorphous place where they want to give away the random collections that they have because of the creation of the Smithsonian. And they are trying to transfer everything that they have to the Smithsonian that is specific to the culture of Indigenous people. Now A lot of this takes the form of archives, so written records, written accounts, early photographs, things like that. But in addition, there's also a lot of material, I'm having trouble tonight, material culture um, that is related to them. So all of these records, all of that goes to the Smithsonian and If you are familiar with the history of the United States and Manifest Destiny and sort of the development of the American West, you probably recognize the name of the founding director, a man named John Wesley Powell. Um, Born in 1834, he dies in 1902. He is probably best known for also being the second director of the U.S. Geological Survey and he was part of the first government-funded exploration down the Colorado River where they went into the Grand Canyon. So likewise, being so closely tied to the American West, understanding it, studying it, He becomes the leader of a group of early anthropologists who are sorting through all of this information and also they realize that with the extermination policies that are in effect that this culture is dying and so they are struggling to try to document it as quickly as possible. A lot of this has to do with linguistics, where they are trying to capture languages as the speakers slowly die out. A lot of it has to do with different types of material culture. But regardless, all of those things, what happens is, is that you have this huge body of work that essentially documents every aspect of life for the surviving indigenous groups in existence come the turn of the century. So a lot of the data that we have is from collections that they had in place. So a lot of what I'm going to be talking about actually goes back to contact, when Europeans first encountered a lot of these processes. And keep in mind that for easily the first century, there was very little venturing past the Appalachians, that the settlers were very much pinned in by the mountain ranges that kept them on the coast. But once America broke away post-Revolutionary War, there was a very rapid expansion. So when things started to happen, they started to happen very quickly, both in terms of actual policies regarding natives and just contact and disease and all of those problems, which obviously led to many tribes being wiped out just by coming into contact with old world diseases. So, we know societally we need to do something about the dead. The solution that often came up was one that, if you are familiar with the history of burials in Europe, is essentially the same idea. So, scaffold burials essentially leave the body exposed to the elements. Either in a tree, where a platform is built in a tree, or on a man-made scaffold. After a period of deterioration, when the remains have essentially been winnowed away to just the skeletal remains, the remains are collected and placed in some sort of charnel house. Now I'm going to go into specific examples. There is variation between the different cultures, but that is the basic idea. Now, if you go back to the very beginning of this podcast and you were to listen about the formation of Père Lachaise in Paris, this was the exact same process that was happening at the Cemetery of Innocents in Paris that became problematic. Burials would be made. The remains would be buried for a few years when they had gone down to skeletal remains. The remains were dug up and the bones were put in a charnel house. You can certainly see this in the catacombs under Paris even today. I'm sure you have seen the Capuchin Church. There are so many examples of the crazy things that were done with some of these bones. But when we talk about scaffold burials, I think the thing that strikes me immediately is they are essentially doing the same thing. And this is a practice that particularly in Europe is still going on today. I have said it more times than I can count on this podcast. The idea of permanent burial is such an American idea. The majority of the world does not do that. Embalming, permanent preservation, all of these ideas are very, very American. You can certainly see in South American countries, the practice, all of this occurs. I actually talked a little bit about this um, When I did the one-year anniversary questions, talking about how the the high premium on burial space means that you get essentially a seven-year. Seven years seems to be the magic number. Now, obviously, when remains are left out and exposed to the elements, the decomposition is going to be a little bit faster. But this is not something new. Um, If any of you have been to Escorial in Spain, Escorial was both the Spanish royal palace plus a monastery plus the burial place of Spanish royalty, there is actually, if you go there, the Spanish royalty is buried underground in the crypt. You go down these stairs and you actually pass the a picturesquely named rotting room or decomposition room where the remains of the royals are allowed to decompose. And I'm not sure that at this point they might use... Some of those flesh-eating beetles that make things speed up the process the same way that they do for other anatomy purposes. But what is actually placed in the sarcophagi that you see in the barrel chamber is just skeletal remains. It's not a full corpse. So this idea of reducing bones down... Again, New Orleans, if you look at New Orleans, this is the whole idea of the caveau underneath the crypts in New Orleans, where you leave the remains in the burial spot for a year and a day, and then you push the bones back and you make space for the next burial. This process is universal across cultures. The scaffold burial is just a particular permutation that we see in Plains Indians. Now, what was the purpose? So first of all, it was to speed up the decomposition process. I think that's a big part of it. Now, I made the earlier statement regarding it not necessarily just being a regional thing. And I say this because one of the arguments is that this is a way to deal with remains when the ground is frozen. And while I think that that's a big part of it, I don't think that's the only part of it. But in this case, you could say it is the indigenous equivalent of a receiving vault. Same thing we see in Western cemeteries. You need a place that is above ground to store remains until the spring thaw when you can dig a grave. All right, that makes sense. Second of all, it has to do with spiritual beliefs. I'll talk a little bit more about that when I get to Choctaw Burials. Thirdly, in terms of respect and safety, it's seen as preferable to burying remains where they can get muddy and dirty. It's seen as being preferable to putting them in a grave that could easily be dug up by animals, which we have lots of ways to prevent that. You know, some cultures will build a cairn, um, pile stones on top of the grave. There are lots of different ways that different cultures deal with this but certainly it is a viable concern likewise a lot of it has to do with the way that mourning occurs again I'm going to talk a little bit more about this when I get to specific cultures in terms of tree burials This seems to be all about convenience because some people say it has to be a cottonwood tree. Some people say a pine tree or a cedar tree. I think a lot of it had to do with what was available and what was sturdy enough. One thing I will say is that we do see both tree and scaffold burials change over time post contact. So for example, you will see later examples of scaffold burials where the deceased is actually in a wooden coffin. This is definitely a post-contact thing. It's something that they adopt from European settlers. Odds are they were getting the coffins from European settlers because it was not part of their tradition. And so you start to see how the different cultures assimilate and how they, in many ways, merge a traditional practice with new materials. And particularly on the Great Plains, I will say that Anybody who read Little House on the Prairie certainly knows that wood is at a premium on the Great Plains. That's not to say that there is no wood, but using wood for something like building a coffin would not have been a major priority. We see remains often covered in bark, so they would take part of the tree. And obviously the scaffolds are made of wood, but you will see, and I will definitely post some photos of these, they are very easy to find uh, on social media, but The practice, 100%, was about using fairly minimal materials, which eventually would biodegrade and often would be burned after the remains were removed. Now, who practiced this? There are several dozen tribes. Um, The Sioux, the Cheyenne, uh, the Ojibwe, uh, the Choctaw, The Crow, the Mandan, there there are probably easily two dozen different tribes where this was their core belief system. Like I said, you do see some of the traditions change over time post-contact, obviously because the influence of Europeans on tribes is almost immediately seen. They do trade, you start to see things show up in the archaeological record of them having European-made goods it's impossible when two cultures come into contact that there's not going to be some exchange. I think everybody who has done 23andMe and found out how much Neanderthal they are definitely can speak to this, that there is overlap between cultures regardless. I do enjoy that Europeans get pretty sanctimonious about a lot of this um, in a way that I think is is kind of ridiculous because I already enumerated how... Essentially, this practice is something that's not exactly reinventing the wheel. Um, Perhaps my favorite is an encounter um, by a man named Charles Landman, who was an artist. And in 1846, he spoke um, about seeing the Ojibwe graves, saying, quote, What a strange contrast in every particular did it present to the graveyards of the civilized world not one of all the multitude had died in peace or with any knowledge of the true god here were no sculptured monuments no names no epitaphs nothing but solitude and utter desolation well this is something that's challenging because again when you don't understand belief systems when you don't understand the lifestyle of a hunter gatherer culture. Now, if you listened last week to me talking about the mound builders, you may have recalled that I read a lot of accounts post contact of early archaeologists complaining about the fact that Plains Indians would come back and bury their bones. On the existing mounds. And I think that there's definitely a tie in. And there's a reason that I did mounds. And then I did scaffold burials. Because I think that they are linked. I don't necessarily say that every tribe. That practiced scaffold burial. Also has burial mounds. But I think that they are closely linked. And often the remains in burial mounds. May have been scaffold burials. That once they were packaged. Were placed in mounds. I am not an archaeologist, I can't say that as a blanket statement, but I think particularly post-contact, when there started to be challenges to their traditional way of life, that this was one of the ways that they dealt with it. Perhaps as they were driven away from where they had previously buried remains, they found these mounds which they knew were native burials, and so they started to use those in their place. I don't have any concrete evidence of this, but to me it makes perfect sense. There is definitely a focus on high ground. That is something that is shared by almost all of these cultures. That the places where they built their charnel houses, the places that the scaffold burials were, they were on the high ground. And if you think about a culture that is based around the Great Plains, this makes a lot of sense. Because in their landscape, and if you've been out in the Midwest, I can remember driving through western Kansas... And seeing a rainstorm come towards me. And it literally looked like a wall of water coming at the car. Because it's so flat. So if you have any high ground, I can see very much in terms of their cosmology. How they would see that as a place of spiritual importance. So the physical landscape is very closely tied to these. And the idea of elevating the body, elevating it above the earth It all makes sense because we have documentation, too, that their final charnel houses where the bones were placed after the scaffold burial also were elevated, also were located on high ground. And this is what Mr. Landman didn't understand. And I love it because I actually read an account of um, Father Kevin Clinton, who was the pastor of St. Peter's Catholic Church. Um, which is right outside of St. Paul, Minnesota, and is located near a traditional burial ground that was used, he talks about the idea that, quote, their registry of burials is recorded in their oral tradition. Westerners did not understand not having written history because they have very short memories and they didn't recall that just a generation or two before, only a select number, of them had access to written language and we certainly know and I talked a lot about this when I talked about Salem a couple of weeks ago literacy is a very modern idea but even for the illiterate in society Europeans had ways of showing them think about the stained-glass windows in Gothic cathedrals and things like that they were meant to be visual representations so that people could learn the gospel stories without actually being able to read the Bible They don't understand the idea that you could have multiple generations who have never written anything down, but continue their stories and their traditions. It is so outside of their understanding of the world that it's very frustrating for them. The idea that it has to do with the landscape is kind of cemented. I read this. It said, quote, Burial scaffolds in the Nebraska Badlands... The corpse is attended by a relative and has been elevated above the ground according to the customs of the indigenous people of the area. This has been done due to the difficulty in digging graves in these badlands. The erosive pattern is typical for soft sediments in arid regions where rain comes only in sporadic occasional downpours. So again, looking at the Midwest, looking at the problem of erosion, looking at the problem of burials... Think about cremation in India. Is it tied to their religion and their cosmology? Certainly. But also, given the landscape, a body that is not burned often comes to light because erosion is a problem, because the landscape is a problem. All of these things are things that you need to take into account when you're trying to understand a culture. And I love that because that was actually a caption underneath like a print that ran in a magazine trying to explain like this is why they do this. This is so closely tied to cultural ideas. But... Also, you need to understand that often tribes, even though they have their own particular burial traditions, overlap. And I think that one of the most interesting ways that you can consider this is uh, by reading some of the white accounts. And so I'm going to read you two accounts. One is from the Minnesota historical record and one is from Wisconsin. And both of these are later examples. So essentially they are compilations that are looking at the different cultural elements of the society and kind of trying to parse them out. And I will warn that some of it is a bit repetitive. Not necessarily a bad way, but in the idea that these were cultures that even though they were separate tribes, they shared a lot of the same ideas. So this is from a book called The Aborigines of Minnesota. Quote, the Dakota are now taking on the forms of civilized society and the improvement which they already manifest is encouraging hopeful indications of what the future may witness. If a Dakota warrior died in battle and his body could not be carried away, he was left on the battlefield. But his body was set up and supported facing the foe. If death took place on a journey, the body, if it could not be carried away, was burned and the ashes were gathered up. In other circumstances, except death from smallpox, the bodies of the dead were cared for in a characteristic ceremony. I include that first part just to say that, obviously, this is something that, again, post-contact, people have to deal with different things, and as death tolls climb... Traditional burials are not always an option. So, as soon as the person had died or while he was dying, his friends dressed him in his best clothes and they put embroidered moccasins upon his feet. When he was dead, they wrapped the body in a blanket made fast by bandages wound around it. Often many blankets and other cloths were wrapped around one over another. A coffin was procured, if possible, generally from some white man. We made many for them. And they were required to be very large to contain the body with all the clothing wrapped around it. Some were buried when they died, but most of them were not. They were placed for a time on trees or scaffolds. In the region of the Upper Minnesota River, I have seen them wrapped in buffalo skins and fastened to the branches of trees. And it is not probable... That the Dakota used coffins before they were acquainted with white men. So th- that's actual white men saying, no, no, this is definitely something that we taught them about. At Lac Kiparle, I have known one or two dead bodies to be left on trees until the enwrapping buffalo skins decayed and the bones fell to the earth. These were, however, rare cases of neglect, For it was the custom of the Dakota to bury their dead either immediately or within a few weeks or months after death. So that's from 1834. The next one from 1853. Mr. Pond was of the opinion that scaffold burial was practiced and arose from the necessity of preserving the bodies in winter until the ground was thawed out in the spring and that graves could be excavated for subsurface burial. And that it was from neglect that corpses were left on the scaffolds too long, i.e., till the body, even the cerements that enshrouded it, had decayed. If that be correct, it would not be reasonable to expect, under normal circumstances, to find scaffold burials in the summer as well. But this was very uncommon. Mr. E.D. Neal stated quote, When anyone dies, the nearest friend is very anxious to go and kill an enemy. A father lost a child while the Treaty of 1851 was pending at Mendota and longed to to kill an Ojibwe. So they're talking about intertribal battles. As soon as an individual dies, the corpse is wrapped in its best clothes. Some that are acquainted with the deceased harangues the spirit upon the virtues of the departed and the friends who sit around with their faces smeared in black pigment as a sign of mourning. Their lamentations are very loud, and they cut their thighs and legs with their fingernails, or pieces of stone, to give vent, as it would appear, to their grief. The corpse is not buried, but placed on a scaffold, in a box, some eight or ten feet from the ground. Hung around the scaffold are the things that would please the spirit, as if it were still in the flesh. Such as the scalp of an enemy, or the pole of a foe. After the corpses had exposed for some once, and the bones only remain, they are buried in a heap, protected from the wolves by stones. So it goes on kind of like in this fashion. These accounts, obviously you can, you can sense that there is an underlying prejudice. That this is somehow unnatural. They acknowledge that there is a reason for it, but there is definitely an attitude about it that you can sense There is a mixture here. Some of these are folks who are actually hired to work for government agencies, taking control of indigenous populations. Some of them are soldiers. Some of them are doctors. There is a wide variety of people who are weighing in about these. But you can already sense that there is a common association between them. Now, this is from uh, the Bulletin of the Public Museum of the City of Milwaukee. Quote, all the Wisconsin Indians practiced scaffold or tree burial to some extent. McKinney describes scaffold burials among the Ojibwe, which he says were used to a slight extent. So these are all, again, like that same period. So McKinney was writing in 1827. Keating, who I'm next going to quote, is 1824. Keating implies, quote, that men only highly respected were buried this way among the Indians. Hoffman describes tree scaffolds which were used extensively among the Menomi, depending upon the wishes of relatives. Use of the scaffold type of burial was practiced sporadically over a portion of the Algonquin area bordering Lake Superior, Michigan, and Huron. Charlevoix states that scaffold burials were employed by the Algonquins when men fell or were killed in hunting or warfare at distances from their home, which deemed it almost prohibitive to return the corpse and the flesh to the relatives of the deceased. According to this early observer, it was by no means a common method of burial. So you can start to see here that there is some dispute. And I think it's because there is a lack of common language, that there is a lack of understanding. Also, I think that you need to keep in mind that they did not understand that these were not tribes often that had a settled placement, that they were nomadic in nature, that they may have moved as part of their hunting and gathering lifestyle wherever the food was or seasonally. So they didn't understand that there was not necessarily a permanent burial space and that they may have left this scaffold burial when they moved on and then come back to remove the bones and take the bones once the decay process had ended because it was a seasonal thing. So by the time they returned, the decomposition process would be complete. So I think that this is one of the things that they don't necessarily understand. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this because one of the best accounts that I have read is actually from the Choctaw tradition. And I'm going to kind of go into it because it talks a little bit about what their cosmology believes, what they think, why they do it um, in a much more in-depth way. But I think you can at least get the impression that this is a common ground, that there are definitely common elements now. I think it's very accurate to say that maybe not every culture practiced it every time. I have read a lot of accounts talking about the fact that this was often reserved for people of significant rank, particularly either the hunters or the warriors. That often women and children did not were not afforded the same things, but certainly there are also accounts that I've seen, there are photographs that I've seen that denote these burials, these scaffold burials being women so I think there is a variation that you need to take into account and there is also probably some shifting values and I think that if anything last week talking about the mound builders really made this clear that the mounds were practiced but we tend to think of them as being one singular project If we are going to build a skyscraper, we're going to build it. And it might take us a year to build it, but then the skyscraper will be there. As opposed to something that is built over multiple generations, that is done over a long extended period of time, possibly even centuries. That's what's often hard, and I think that's one of the reasons that there was such a level of misunderstanding between the Europeans and the indigenous groups that they were observing, because they had certain technologies and they had a labor force that allowed for that. Remember, talking last week about Cahokia and the growth of that, when you become sedentary, when you start to grow crops, your culture, by definition, is going to become more complex because you are no longer focused on the day-to-day efforts of just finding enough food to keep yourself alive you have a surplus of food. With a surplus of food comes a proliferation of culture. And so I think that these scaffold burials, which seem very desolate and very sparse to Europeans, are also an indicator of that underlying hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Now, when I was sitting down to pick one example to focus on, I picked the Choctaw for a couple of reasons. First of all, If you are a long-time listener, you do know that I work in cultural resource management in the southeast. So first of all, these are the tribes that when I do tribal coordination with indigenous people who may have an interest in projects that I'm working on, these are the tribes that are most often associated with my projects. So I'm a little bit more familiar with the culture. But more importantly than that, the Choctaw are the descendants of the Hopewell and Mississippian tribes that I talked about last week with the mound Builders. So in terms of drawing parallels and understanding how practices change, understanding how cultural traditions transfer over time, it's definitely a worthwhile thing to talk about. So if you are not familiar, so the Choctaw are the tribal group that emerges in the southeastern United States So, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, portions of Georgia, not as much of Georgia. As I said, they are descended from the tribes that I talked about last week, uh, primarily those in the Hopewell and Mississippian periods of the mound builders. They have a very interesting relationship with the European settlers from the beginning, and it's one of the reasons that their practices are so well documented. They were classified, and I hate to even say this, but they were considered to be one of the five civilized tribes. They generally sided on the American side in the American Revolution, and so they they were seen as, in many ways, having been tolerant neighbors. But they did have one thing that was very valuable, That the U.S. wanted, and that was land. That post-revolution, the idea of manifest destiny, that we need to push west, that it is the God-given destiny of the United States to cover the land, to tame the land. Well, the people who were here first are in the way. So the Choctaw today... I have to talk about it. So there are actually three federally recognized bands of the Choctaw. In total, their population today stands at around 215,000. The largest portion of that belongs to the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma which is where, unfortunately, they did end up after they were driven out of the Southeastern United States. But there are several smaller bands of Choctaw. So there is the Mississippi Band of the Choctaw Indians, the Jenna Band of the Choctaw Indians. All three are federally recognized tribes. They're all in different geographic locations. Uh, And there are some smaller bands, from what I've read, that are not necessarily federally recognized. One thing I did not know when I actually learned when I was doing this research is that particularly the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians did make an agreement with the federal government uh, in 1831 called the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek, which to me is very much an early attempt at trying to integrate into Western society or at I should say the U.S. pushing that idea because it reminds me some of the language of the treaty is very similar to what you see in the 1940s to the 1960s when they tried to take away tribal recognition, saying, you know, you don't need to have this tribal recognition from the federal government. You're going to be much better off if you just try to integrate into American society. You'll be happier if you chase the American dream. And this seemed to be the idea that if you had, quote unquote, friendly natives Why don't we try to make them into productive colonists? Why don't we use them to help tame the wilderness? And that seems to be the attempt here. But unfortunately, for the most part, the Choctaw Indians were among the first who were forced to relocate as part of the Indian Removal Act, which was passed in 1830. Uh, This is something I don't think I need to go into. I would hope that the Trail of Tears and the process of Indian removals is very well known to the majority of you. But that is one of the ways that they take their burial traditions and move them westward. Now, to understand scaffold burial for the Choctaw, you first have to understand their conception of living humans. And the first is that every living human has a shalombush. S-H-I-L-O-M-B-I-S-H, Shulumbish, um which translates to like a spirit or a soul. And they also have a shilup, S-H-I-L-U-P, or a shadow. And so their understanding is that certain events, for example, dreaming. In dreaming, the Shalombish leaves the body and can travel. And then when it returns to the body, the body wakes up. But they believe that both the shalombish and the Shilop, the shadow, leave the body at death. And while the shilup, the shadow, can actually wander the earth for many years as a ghost, the shalombish, the spirit, only lingers for a few days. And so a lot of their burial traditions are placed around easing the transition from the living to the dead. And this is something that, again, can be seen cross-culturally. The practice of burying grave goods, which is seen. The practice is, you know, of the Egyptians. Think of the terracotta warriors. This is something of, you know, having something there to aid the dead when they wake up in the new world. Giving them food, giving them servants. All of these ideas are pretty universal. So for the first few days following the death, there are fires that are tended round the clock to keep the soul warm, to help that transition, leaving food for the deceased. All of these aspects are to help the shalombish make that transition into the world of the dead. It almost strikes me as being similar to the Jewish custom of sitting Shiva, that there is this period of mourning, and obviously in Western traditions we have particularly in the Victorian era, very elaborate mourning rituals. So, not to push too much Western culture, but just to put it in terms that we as Westerners are familiar with to kind of explain what they are doing. So, the scaffolds were generally built away from the buildings. Not too close, but sort of within sightline of where the deceased had lived. They were at least four four to six feet off the ground generally six i have heard as high as eight or even ten feet off the ground i think a lot of it had to do with whatever materials they had available but six feet is generally the standard the scaffold is supported by four to six posts and above the scaffold is sort of a bark covering on top of the individual it's often called a bark house but From what I can see from images and drawings, it does not appear that it was actually built as a house. It was more of kind of like a wrap, like a shroud. Grave goods were placed around the body. So things, again, to help with that transition of the dead. And then lastly, and I thought this was very interesting, that there were benches built around the base often for the mourners to sit Now, I had an interesting conversation with one of my archaeologist friends, and he was telling me about a young woman who actually attempted to recreate a scaffold burial as part of her graduate degree, as part of her thesis. And so instead of obviously using a human body, what she used was a pig carcass, I believe. And he said that if you are anywhere downwind of this, as... The pig carcass started to decay. He said it it, it was, it smelled so bad that you could barely breathe, and you were, people were visibly gagging. So I don't know. I, I think it would have been quite an attempt for the mourners to spend time around this. And it's interesting because I remember the first time I ever saw a scaffold burial not accurate in any sense, but was actually in the movie The Last of the Mohicans, which again, I know I have talked about in the past month, but what can I say? I'm a sucker for Daniel Day-Lewis in a loincloth. And they're at one point hiding from the enemy and they hide beneath scaffold burials because they say, you know, it's taboo to enter that area. Well, I would imagine it's also for health and just personal comfort that one would not want to be... That close to openly decaying remains. So I thought that this was a very interesting touch that they had these benches around the base of the scaffold. Now, the thing that I think is perhaps most non Western, and again, it, this is kind of a silly concept to think of things as Western versus non Western, is the individuals known as bone pickers. So the bone pickers. Nafani, an uh, I, Iowa, N A F O N I A O I W A, who were usually men but could be women, were members of the tribe. They had very distinctive tattoos, and historically, they are documented as having long fingernails on their thumb, their middle finger, and their pointer finger. I picture. Just like long, scratchy fingernails when I think of this. And after the prescribed period of mourning, and there's no indication from the literature that I read that this is a set amount of time. It may have depended perhaps on the time of year that the individual died, how long it took for the decay to happen, a lot of other factors. But on the last day of mourning, there was... A big kind of emotional outpouring. And that was sort of the end of the mourning period. And then after that point, the remains would be picked clean by the bone pickers. So essentially, if the remains were almost skeletal, any remaining flesh would be physically removed by these individuals. The bones would be cleaned and washed and the skull would be painted red. And at that point, the remains were returned to the family to be placed in the charnel house. And the charnel house in the Choctaw culture is the hatak illifoni Ayasha, <laughs> H-A-T-A-K-I-L-L-I-F-O-N-I-A-I-A-S-H-A. That's the last word that got me. Ayasha? Ayasha? Maybe that's it? But so, interestingly enough, the charnel houses were also a scaffold structure. So they, too, were elevated six feet above the ground on poles. It had a roof, but it was open on both ends. And this almost reminds me very much of the New Orleans-style family tombs. Because what they would do was there would be multiple collections of bones placed in the charnel house over time and they would be left there until the charnel house was full and then eventually the bones might be removed if they needed more space in the charnel house so it's a multi-generational mausoleum almost collection of bones placed in this charnel house again i think this probably varied depending on how sedentary or how wide the area was that was covered by the tribe but it does appear that these are long-standing traditions that do last for quite some time. It's so interesting, and I I don't know what the veracity of this is, but it, I did read some accounts that said during the Trail of Tears that those who were in mourning and had not yet had a chance to remove remains from scaffolds chose to stay behind initially so that they could finish out their period of mourning. And Knowing later that the Mississippi band of Choctaw Indians did sign this treaty a year after the Indian removal started, you have to wonder if maybe their mourning practices played a role in that. I don't have any proof of this, but I thought that was kind of an interesting little twist on the story. I did read that some of the early ethnographers who had written about the culture talked about how there was a celebration for the dead that was held every year in November. But if you, again, if you're a longtime listener and if you've listened to the episode on Catholic cemeteries, you might remember that November is also the month of the dead in the Catholic Church, and particularly among the Choctaw who remained in Mississippi, so the Choctaw Band of Mississippi, uh, the Choctaw Band of Mississippi, um, many of them converted to Catholicism. So I have to wonder if this is something that actually happened every year in November or if this is an example of the overlap of Catholic culture and Choctaw culture where some of their traditions got mixed up and may have overlapped, similar to the way that... um, You know, loas and different spirits from voodoo culture have been merged with Catholic ideas of saints. And something tells me, because it just happens to be November, and obviously I don't think that historically the Choctaw followed anything close to a Gregorian calendar. It just seems a little too convenient not to be a little bit of cultural appropriation. But still, I thought it was kind of an interesting aspect of it now I mentioned earlier that these scaffold burials can be seen into the 20th century there are a few examples that you can see photographs uh, in the library of congress a-, a number of other places that document these as late I think the latest I may have seen was like 1912 As I said, the cultural appropriation and using coffins and more traditional styles of burial linked with being placed on reservations where they are suddenly sedentary, they are in one location, I think means that a lot of the traditions did start to die fairly quickly. And interestingly enough, even a lot of the accounts that I read... Um, from different tribes, and from in- people who are actually of indigenous origin, much of the talking that they do about scaffold burials is not from their own experience, but it's based off the ethnographers who were documenting this stuff in the 19th century. So hopefully that draws an interesting parallel between the mound builders and the progressive westward migration of tribes um, after the Indian Removal Act these are some of the most striking burials that you will ever see. They, they, they really are exceptional, I think, just because they seem so foreign, but hopefully as I proved today, they really aren't. They are trying to deal with the same realities of death and burial that we as a Western culture have been struggling with for centuries, and in many ways still are. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you know what I'm talking about. Follow along on social media for lots of other extra goodies, both on Facebook and Instagram. You can find Tomb of the View podcast very easily. And if you are seeing things too, uh, I haven't had a lot of shares recently, but please interact with me. Send me some fun stuff. Uh, It is coming up on Thanksgiving this week. Don't forget, be safe, Uh, and if you do see your family, tell them that uh, really I don't think that anybody was showing anybody else how to grow corn, Uh, and that maybe we should try to embrace a little bit of the history that has so often been forgotten. So tell them about scaffold burials over dinner. That should be a fun conversation starter. But I hope everyone has a very safe, healthy Thanksgiving, has lots to be grateful for. Hopefully you are all continuing to be in good health. And hopefully having a four-day weekend. Next week's episode won't be late. But for now, I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tune With A View.